Can you speak to whether there are actually venial and mortal sins? I suppose uh, you probably can because you've never been Catholic. You were a Catholic. I was Catholic. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so when you're... Um, when I, when I was growing up, I went to Catholic school, and uh, I remember the lesson. Uh, we were taught that there's uh, two categories. The venial sins are the sins that uh, are, as soon as you confess them uh, to the priest and do your penance, they're gone. And they're, it's as though they never were. But mortal sins are the ones where uh, we were taught. It's, it's like uh, putting a nail in a board. You can remove the nail, but there's a scar there. There's a dent there. You always know that, that, there's, that it was there. Um, and they never go away. And so those are the real serious sins. And I, I remember, it was probably first grade, second grade maybe, but I became obsessed with that. Um, and I just, you know, with my stuttering voice, uh, kind of disrupted the whole class, uh, pressing on this, there's a priest and a nun who are teaching this, and I need to know exactly what the distinction is. You know, have I committed uh, one of the mortal sins that will never go away? And in particular, and I shared this, I think, uh, several weeks ago, um, I, I, at a very young age, was involved in a lot of bizarre stuff. Like we had a stripping club. To, you had to join it by stripping. And we had a smoking club where you joined it by stealing your parents' cigarettes or cigars, and we'd smoke them. I'm like six, seven years old. This is crazy. But uh, all these bad, bad, bad things. And I want to know, I, you know, is stripping a mortal sin? <laughs> is smoking a mortal sin? And uh, yeah, so I, I don't see any any uh, grounds for that at all. The only distinction you find in the Bible, so far as I can see, is that there's sin is missing the mark. So any time that we fall short of the glory of God, it's sin um, and can disrupt our relationship with God. Uh, the only distinction that I find is that there is this thing that Jesus called the unforgivable sin, uh, the, the sin against the Holy Spirit, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And neither he nor anyone else in the Bible ever accused anyone of having done that. He warns the Pharisees about it because um, uh, they were so spiritually hard that they uh, were—they couldn't even tell the difference between the Holy Spirit and Satan. They thought that what he was doing was of Satan. And Jesus is saying that that is indicative of a heart that is way, way, way down the track of being hardened against God. And watch it because uh, you can get into a point where you'll never be forgiven. Now, the thing is, is that the Bible tells us that if we confess our sin, God is willing and wants to forgive our sin. So the sin against the Holy Spirit, I take it to be the sin where you are, have so persistently resisted God and said no to God that you, your heart gets so hard that you will now never ask for forgiveness. You'll never confess it. You won't want to confess it. You're so far gone. Uh, God is Satan and Satan is God. I mean, that is... And, um, the reason it's, it's unforgivable is because you'll never, you'll, you'll never turn. God would forgive it if you turn, but uh, uh, you get to a point where you're so hard you won't. Um, which, which means, final word here, is that if, if you're ever concerned or dealing with any, anyone who's concerned that they've committed uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit, and I get this at least once or twice a year, uh, the fact that they're concerned about it shows that they haven't done it. Uh, because if they had done it, they wouldn't be concerned about it. Other than that, though, I, I, sin is sin. It's missing the mark, and, and that's, that's that. If the Mars Land Rover Curiosity discovers evidence that life once inhabited that planet, does it argue against the Christian view that life on Earth is unique and created by God? There you go. Can I take a ball? <laughs> You're a rover specialist. Yes, yes. And you have a lot of curiosity, so I, I go for it. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think the, a lot of times uh, human beings have been 
so human-centric that uh, we have this idea that if God, is, God has anything else going on in the universe other than us, it sort of threatens you know, the importance of, of human beings and our relationship with God. I don't know. I mean, you know, once upon a time, in fact, not that many years ago, we used to think the universe was relatively a small place and Earth was at the center. And since Galileo and Copernicus and others, we've realized that's not quite the case. And in the last hundred years, we've begun to realize the, the universe is unfathomably large with, you know, countless galaxies and who knows how many planets. Could God maybe have wanted to create another species of intelligent creature to love him and be... It doesn't seem to me like implausible, and I don't think, you know, whether we find, you know, evidence of sort of some form of life on Mars or even intelligent life somewhere else in the universe, that that somehow threatens our importance to God and the importance of our love relationship with Him. Um, I think Larry Norman answered this back in the '70s when he, when he, in his song UFO, he said, "If there's life on other planets, then I'm sure that He must know, and He's been there once already, and has died to save their souls." <laughs> Go, Larry. That presupposes that they fell. What if you had a, a race? Don't push fall? Larry. He wasn't a theologian. He was a songwriter. All right. C.S. Lewis at one point said, uh, I think this is in the essays, God in the Dock, but he said, uh, the chickens in the coop uh, need only trust the person who comes to feed them. Uh, it's of no concern to theirs what else is going on on the rest of the farm or something like that. But that's it. You know, we, we know God and what he thinks about us and and what, if there's life in other places, uh, well, that's, that's God's business, and it'll be, it'll be fine. It really comes down to, I think there's a, uh, a tendency that we have. We, it's hard to grasp God's infinite, un, unlimited intelligence and unlimited love. And um, so sometimes people feel uh, less loved because there's so many people around, okay? There's, and, and so we think that God has to spread his love thin. Like, God would love me more if I was the only one that existed. And so the fact that it's like we have to compete for his love with six, seven billion other people. And then if there's life on other planets, well, then it's even, you know, his attention towards us is less and his love for us must be less. But in fact, if we just are remain confident that God's love and intelligence is unlimited, mm. then you realize that God's love for you and interest in you is exactly the same uh, if uh, you're the only one he ever created as it is if there's 7 billion or 700 trillion other beings that he loves and created. Because uh, you can't divide up infinity. You can't, it, it doesn't have to be diluted. So sometimes in prayer, it's really good to just envision you as the only one God made. You're the only creation. And all of his attention is on you and all of his love is being poured into you. Because in fact, that's true. It's just that he also does that with every other person that exists. Is abstaining from sex before marriage realistic? Are there any exceptions? <laughs> sex before marriage, realistic. Married people think it's realistic. You know. <laughs> Um, this is good. This is good. This is good. In yeah, fact, this, this is, is a moment. Say it's right. And Greg's thought a lot about this and would love to answer. This Go one. ahead, Paul. You're the expert. You're uh, the sex expert. Oh. Dr. Dr. Ruth Love. is on the air. Dr. Love. Dr. Ruth. Um, you know, it's pretty clear from, from the New Testament that Jesus, and he's followed by Paul and the rest of the letter writers who at least talk about this topic, um, do think that is a realistic possibility, that, that we can contain sex to marriage. But the reason they do that, I think, is not simply like, well, here's an idea, how about this? Uh, it's that their vision of sexuality is such that it only logically makes sense within a covenantal relationship. 
And I think our culture has so largely lost the notion of covenant. And we've, we've turned marriage into a legal certificate we filed at a courthouse that that piece of paper doesn't seem that meaningful to us. And so what's really the big deal if I love somebody, right? And so for our culture, it seems like a, a pretty almost inconsequential issue as long as there's love. But the question is, is there love? And now we've got to talk about what is love. And what love is in the biblical sense is never simply a feeling. It's never simply a romantic inclination because as all cultures through human history have shown, we all know that romantic inclinations can change on a dime depending on how you feel or what they do or all this stuff. And God says that's, sexual intimacy is far too important to leverage on how you happen to feel about someone today as opposed to tomorrow. And so the only way to kind of secure a safe healthy spot for that level of intimacy is in a covenant where you promise that regardless of how I feel about you tomorrow, I'm still here to love you. I'm still here to love you. And so marriage from a God's perspective is simply that kind of covenantal promise. And I think as you look at scripture, sex is treated as the sign of that kind of covenant. And it's really, if you understand covenant relationships, you can't separate sign from covenant. They they come as a package. And even all that being said, um, there's so much more we could say about it that, in fact, um, Vanessa talked about uh, a series we'll be doing this fall um, about some tough issues, some of which are on sexuality. In one week, Greg and I are going to actually do a team uh, tag, tag team thing on a sermon on the issue of sexuality and premarital sex and that, so we'll save further developments till then. I'd just like to add that, that it's important to realize, you know, as kingdom people, we, we are called to not be conformed to the pattern of the world, mm-hmm. uh, Romans 12, 2. And uh, that, that has to do with uh, the fundamental assumptions of the world, uh, the presuppositions of the culture. Um, all other things being equal, if we aren't taking a concerted effort to do otherwise, we will be brainwashed to think the way the culture thinks. And one of the unique things, and it's very, very unique about our culture, is that we have virtually deified sex. Uh, it, it becomes a deity. Uh, and and it, it's uh, now seen as being part of our essential identity. Um, so to deny sexual, sexual activities is, is to deny like one of the ultimate values and who you are. It's seen as being part of your identity. And so with that, with that assumption, now the, the idea of abstaining from sex uh, for any reason is, is uh, un- unthinkable. And that's kind of how it is in our culture. And so throughout and all the media venues, the movies, the television, and radio, the songs... Uh, it, it's all reinforcing this indoctrination that this is some, this is the air we breathe. You, you, I'm desperate for it. I gotta have it. And this this idea that you should abstain it just is 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 ridiculous. But as kingdom people, we're to not be conformed to that and to wake up to the ways that the culture and the forces of the world are trying to brainwash us and realize that our identity is not in our, our sex and it's not in anything other than Jesus Christ. And so when we can reframe it that way, it empowers us uh, to live in a different way and to go in a different direction. Uh, so it's not just a matter of willpower saying, oh, I just got to stop it. But it's rather to go more, more deeply and to reframe who you are, what you're about, what the world's about, why you're, what, what the purpose of your life is. And it's out of that whole context that you're empowered to live in a different way. Amen. Thank you. How do we as Christians believe in a Bible that has so many discrepancies? For instance, it varies in volumes for different branches of Christianity. It was created 300 years after Jesus' death, and there are different interpretations of the same texts. We've written a book on this. 
We have. We have. I didn't know it. <laughs> you forgot you wrote the Jesus yeah, legend. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Uh, good question. And I, I, we, we think, Greg's forgotten this, but, but even he thinks <laughs> that something hangs Tell on the reliability of the Bible. Uh, so this, this question is raising issues around what, what books are in the Bible. And it's true that, for example, Roman Catholics and Protestants, uh, if you look at their official Bibles, there's more books in the Catholic Bible than in the Protestant Bible, uh, something we call the Apocrypha, at least from a Protestant perspective. Um, and that has to do with the question as to whether these, this set of about 13 or 14, depending on how you count them actually, uh, books that are in the Catholic Bible, not in the Protestant Bible, uh, comes down to a question of whether these books written between the Old and New Testaments during that about 400-year period of time should be in the, 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 the Bible or not. Um, why Protestants don't, one of the reasons, is that Jewish people themselves who wrote these books didn't consider them part of, of the Old Testament canon, and so Protestants have agreed with that. It, it kind of came to a head during the Reformation in the 1600s when Protestant Catholics were, were really pulling apart, and they kind of both solidified very strongly against each other on this issue. But we all agree that the 66 books of the, the, the Old Testament and the 39 Old Testament, 27 New, we all agree that that, that is, is Scripture. There's some discrepancies on these 13 books. Um, but the, another, another part of the question here was, how can we trust the New Testament uh, when it's written 300 years after Jesus? I would just take serious issue with, with that claim that it was written 300 years after Jesus. I mean, the Gospel of John, which scholars believe is probably the last of the Gospels written, we have a fragment, uh, an actual fragment sitting in Manchester Library in England uh, that's dated to the mid-2nd century. Uh, and this is one of the last texts written. So uh, Greg and I happen to believe there's really good evidence, and we're not alone here. I mean, across the liberal conservative spectrum of scholars, most scholars believe that all of the Gospels were written before the turn of the century, so between uh, 760 to, to 90 AD, well within a generation, a generation and a half of Jesus, which means most of the books of the New Testament, perhaps all of them, were written within the lifespan of people who were alive at the time of Jesus. And this actually secures a, a, a reliability uh, possibility that's, that's far beyond if they had gone thir- three, four hundred years later when there's no living witnesses, there's no one to keep any accountability. Um, and so by, by real standards, what we're dealing with in the New Testament is, is what you'd call uh, oral history. It's being written in the, when, when, it's, when people who are still alive at the time of Jesus are around and alive to give feedback on this stuff. Um, if you're interested in this, we actually, uh, in 2007, came out with uh, two books, um, one quite academic called The Jesus Legend, one a little easier and smaller called Lord or Legend. It's a lot easier. A lot easier and smaller, <laughs> uh, which deals with the issue, can we trust the, the uh, Gospels in terms of their portrait of Jesus? And of course, uh, during that book, Paul uncovered, he just mentioned here the oral tradition stuff, and uh, he uncovered uh, just uh, a wealth of, of very persuasive evidence showing just how the oral in, in, the, in, in the first century we were writing was, was rather limited, uh, how, how reliable oral traditions were, and it really strengthens the reliability of the Gospels and stuff like that. He got so into it, I had to kind of pull him back because he got off on a rabbit trail it was going to become. But he is one of the world's best experts on oral traditions, orality, <laughs> as they call it. So you might want to uh, check out those books. The only other thing I'd add is, is this. Um, uh, I, I think a really good case can be made that, in fact, the Gospels uh, and, and possibly all of the uh, New Testament documents were written before 70 A.D., uh, which puts them even earlier. 
But that aside, um, I, I always encourage folks to consider doing this. Um, many, even most evangelicals, anyways, have their the Bible is is the foundation of their faith, and so it becomes uh, as it's sometimes called a religion of the book. Um, and, and everything hangs on that. And that's why questions about reliability or, or contradictions or interpretations, they become extremely important because uh, if this goes, if this falls, then everything falls. Um, an alternative way of doing faith, which is, for me, much more reliable um, and much more sensible, is, is to have Christ as the center and the foundation of everything. And the reason I believe in, in, in Jesus as the revelation of God and the Savior of the world is really based on a number of things, but, but uh, uh, historical considerations play a big role in that. And that's what comes out in the Jesus legend or this book, Lord or Legend. I've got very good reasons for thinking Jesus is the revelation of God and the Savior of the world. And my belief in the Bible, as the inspired Word of God, follows from my belief in Jesus. I don't believe in Jesus because I find him in the Bible. I, I believe in the Bible because uh, I, I have reasons to think Jesus was right about in, endorsing it. And um, what that means is that, that we are a community of a person, not a community of, of the book. The book is very, very important. It's, it's a God-inspired witness. But the foundation for everything isn't the book, it's Christ. And that takes, that means I, I, I can, uh, I don't get so, so, so concerned when there's issues surrounding the Bible and interpretations and contradictions and whatever. Um, no, my life is in Christ and and uh, this, as important as it is, it's not our, my source of life or the foundation of my faith. Think about it. <laughs> will our pets be in heaven, and will they still remember us? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't be heaven if they weren't there. Come you on. Want, you want to say that after that cat you owned? Uh, the cat, you know. Not, was, you told me it was possessed. Cats are damned to hell, but dogs are. <laughs> no, there might be a safe cat. Or so. I, I, I should be a little bit more humble, I think. And, okay. no. You know, I, for, for people who uh, are animal lovers, this is not uh, a silly question at all. And I, I've even known uh, a few people who lost their faith as, as uh, children when they were told that their deceased pet, because it doesn't have a soul, it's not going to be in heaven. Um, and I, I, my response is, is just this. Uh, Paul says that it's greater than heaven, the kingdom of God, when it's fully come, will be greater than anything we can imagine. And if, um, if, if the greatest thing I can imagine is, um, if not having my, my pet there would, would take away the greatness of heaven, well then, of course, the pet would be there. I, it's, <laughs> I, I don't think we're going to be longing for uh, our, our loved ones, our loved animals in heaven. The other thing is to remember that you... Human beings, we sometimes get a really intense anthropocentric or human-centered understanding of what Jesus did on the cross, as though the only thing he did was save human beings. But the New Testament tells us that it was all creation is redeemed. It's the whole creation. And the whole creation is groaning now because it's not redeemed, it's not working right, but someday the whole creation, all things will be made harmonious and brought together. And um, whatever else that means, it leads me to believe that that animals that we love are, are, are going to be present there in heaven. And you find some texts that explicitly mention animals in the kingdom of God. The lion laying down with the lamb and, and, and things of that sort. So the animals will be, the animals will be redeemed. They'll have lost their, their fallen carnivorous natures. Uh, we have no idea what a lion would look like if it wasn't carnivorous, but who cares? Uh, but the, I'm convinced the animals would be there in the kingdom. And God yeah. loves animals too. You find yeah. that throughout the Bible. Yeah. 
Halloween. I hope I see buttons again. I do. Buttons? My dog. Oh. Buttons, I hope. <laughs> I'm sure you will, Paul. Thank you. Uh, my Calvinist friends say that God has two wills, a sovereign will and a moral will. Why do they believe this, and do you agree? Uh, the two wills of God. Yeah. Um, this has been a common teaching amongst uh, the Calvinist Reformed tradition for, for a number of years. <clears throat> and in a sense, if you hold to a Calvinist view of God, you kind of have to, I think, go with the idea that God has two different wills. Because from a Calvinist perspective, on one hand, um, a Calvinist, like, like any Bible-believing Christian, is going to say that they absolutely agree with all of the, let's say, commands against sin, uh, all the places in the Bible where it says that God hates sin and, and loves righteousness and all that sort of thing. And yet on the other, uh, a Calvinist view of God is that God ordains everything that happens, including sin. And so the, the, the force to explain, well, how then can God, on one hand, ordain all the sin that happens and, and ensure that it will happen, and on the other hand, say that he hates it? Uh, the only kind of, I think, logical way of, uh, of approaching this is saying, well, he must have two different wills. One will in God wants the sin, that's why he ordains it. Another will hates the sin, and that's why he says he hates it. And so the sovereign will is what, what actually happens, what God ordains. The moral will is kind of God reporting on the fact that there's things about sin that he doesn't like, even though he ordains it. Um, I, for one, don't agree with that perspective. Um, <laughs> Tell us shocking, about that. Shocking, I know. Tell us what? <laughs> you know, he, he, here's the thing is... is uh, First and foremost, uh, as I always teach here, that um, we're to keep our eyes focused on Jesus to know what God is like. If, if you see me, you see the Father, Jesus says. And there's all those verses I go over a lot around here because they're so crucial. The fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily form. And um, uh, he's the definitive word of God and image of God and form of God and the perfect expression of, of God's essence and on and on and on. Now, what, what this idea of two wills does... Is it, it says, well, Jesus reveals part of God, uh, the loving side of God, the God, the part of God that his moral will, but not a sovereign will. And so there's this, this God behind God. So when Jesus says, if you see me, you see the Father, what he's really saying in this view is, if you see me, you see one side of the Father, but there's this other side. And sometimes this duality becomes pretty intense. I mean, we're, I mean, in Calvin, in the Institutes, he's got a thing where he'll talk about the beauty of God revealed in Jesus, but this, this other, the, the, the uh, deus absconditas, the, the obscure God, the hidden God, uh, he even says that at the heart of that God is this horrible decree. And he calls, he uses the word horrible. And it was the decree that the majority of human beings are going to go to hell. And so you've got this real kind of duplicity going on there. I, I believe that we should take all of our bearings about God's nature and what his will is and what his purpose is from the person of Jesus Christ and the verses that they appeal to, uh, to suggest that God's all controlling, there's other ways of interpreting those verses, and those are the ones that I think are more plausible. And the final thing I'll say about it is this. If this model of God, it's such an important question because everything hangs on your mental picture of God. Your relationship with God is always mediated by your mental picture. So the beauty of your transformation will never outrun the beauty of your image of God. So we're talking about something real fundamental here. But it seems to me that this, this model of having two wills uh, really introduces a contradiction into the heart of the Godhead. Think about it this way. Um, uh, 
you and I to the degree that we are, are, are transformed into the likeness of Christ, we uh, are repulsed by evil and, and, and we, we hate sin and we hate destruction and we, uh, we, we just grieve when human beings are, are, are in pain. And, and so our moral will is really has a conflict with, with evil and should, obviously. But God's moral will clearly would be unthinkably more uh, intense than ours would. If we're grieved by evil, God must be all the more, I mean, infinitely grieved by evil. If, if we detest uh, an injustice, God must t- detest it uh, with, with an infinite intensity. We, now, here's the thing. If God has a sovereign will that decrees all of the evil that comes to pass and the sin that comes to pass and the pain that comes to pass, God's moral will must infinitely hate the sovereign will that decrees it. So God must be the most conflicted being in the universe, in fact, more conflicted than we can possibly imagine. God must, in fact, hate himself. Think about it. Uh, if, if I, I hate, I hate uh, the idea of a little girl being kidnapped and, and raped and killed. Uh, if I had a part of me that was actually ordaining that the little girl gets kidnapped, raped, and killed, I'd hate that part. Um, and so... Uh, uh, it really, I think, in a, it does a lot of damage to our picture of God, and I encourage people to keep your eyes focused on Jesus. That's the will. That's the love. That's the character of God's very essence. If you see him, you see God. All you need to know about God is found there. End of discussion, in my opinion. Thank you. <laughs> Amen. Push one of my hot buttons. <laughs> Do visitations from the dead exist? Are they a work of Satan, God, or neither? Visitations from the dead? Yep. All right. Visitations from the dead. I'm sure you've oh, written a book on that. <laughs> <laughs> you want to tell you? Want me to? Uh, okay, That's so you have f- folks uh, who um, uh, you know, claim to have their grandmother appear to them or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, and what, what do you do with these? Ghosts or apparitions or I, I assume that's what the person's asking for. Um, here's, I, I think, the bottom line uh, that I'd like to, to share would be this. Um, the, Bible, the Bible never encourages, in fact, forbids contact with the dead. Uh, it's called mediumship, uh, where you're trying to... And whatever happens to uh, people when they're deceased, wherever their spirits go or whatever you believe about that, and there's some room for discussion there. People have different opinions. But whatever happens there, that's not our business. Our business is with the living. God's the God of the living. And, and we take our marching orders from God. And, um, and so he says, don't, don't dabble in that. I don't, I'm not going to say that every apparition is a demon. Um, or I don't know enough about the spiritual realm to know the goings-on, the details about that. Um, whether it could be an angel that you thought was, was your loved one or, or you know, whatever. I, I, you're not gonna, all I'm going to do is give a warning about dabbling in that or, or even entertaining that or, or basing anything on that. Um, when, we, when we dabble in the spiritual realm in ways that God does not endorse, we are playing with serious fire. You're, you're dialing up something and you don't know what you're going to get on the other end. And there are good spiritual agents uh, working on our behalf, but there are also evil spiritual agents and who are very good at deception and uh, uh, leading us astray. And so I really encourage folks to, um, uh, without being able to give a definitive answer on all that happens with parapsychology and you know, all of that, 
I just say, be very careful about that. Don't dabble with that. Never in the Bible are we encouraged not only not to contact the dead, but to even initiate any discussions with angels, anyone other than, than Jesus. If an angel shows up, that's one thing. People respond to them. But you've got to be careful because an, Paul says that an angel can look like an angel of light, but really be uh, Satan himself. So be very careful about that. But never are we supposed to initiate that. Uh, our, the only one that we're to communicate with uh, is God through the person of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God is the creator of all things. So why does he create things like fear, anxiety, the devil, and other things? Mm. Yeah, I mean, certainly um, from Genesis chapter 1 onwards, you have this idea that God alone is the creator. But when, when both the Old and New Testaments use that phrase, they're not claiming that every phenomena we see on planet Earth derives directly from God, what they're claiming is that all, all things have been created by God. There's, there's not some second creator out there. But we'll take Satan as one of the examples, since it's part of the question. And this often comes up in the, in the form of the question, why would God create Satan if he doesn't want evil, and in fact wants good? Well, from all indications, uh, and we're not, we don't have a lot of, of information on this, but from the bit we do have in Scripture, and certainly through Christian tradition, um, when God created Satan, he did not create Satan as an evil angel. He created him as an angel, like all angels. And uh, from a biblical perspective, I think we can say he, he created Satan for fellowship with him. But if angels, as well as human beings, have free will, they too can use their freedom to, to walk away from God rather than toward God. And when Satan chose to do that and, and break ranks with God and apparently persuaded a lot of other angels to follow him in that and set up this, this kingdom of darkness, um, did God create them? Yes, but he didn't create them evil. He created them with the possibility of either evil or good because that's yeah. what love requires. Love requires that uh, creatures have the ability to say no to God so that when they say yes to God, it's actually love and not simply programmed robots or something like that. So we've got to be careful what we mean when we say God is the creator of all things. Yes, he creates all things, but he doesn't determine their moral characters. That he gives the gift of freedom for love. And sometimes we use it, and angels use it for very wrong purposes. Good. So everything that, that is off uh, with the world, um, I assume, is the result of some will other than God's. All, all that's beautiful uh, has its ultimate origin in God. Uh, the creator, the all-good creator, all that is not is has its ultimate origin in wills other than God. The only thing I would add to to that is is this um, that that we the question asks, well, why did God create fear and anxiety and things like that? Um, and I say this that that the way God created us originally, uh, those kind of emotions uh, would have had a good function. I mean, th- there's a positive role that. Most emotions can play in the right context. So fear, for example, um, would be a, um, is a natural reaction to something that's threatening uh, or something that's going to threaten you or threaten a loved one or whatever. And um, there's a healthy response there. And it would be, you know, to, it's, a, it's that fight or flight uh, reflex. Uh, now, in a fallen world, sometimes uh, what we fear is inappropriate or the degree to which we fear or anxiety uh, the, a lot of the way we, we fear now is, is rooted in our lack of trust of God. 
If we had a complete trust of God, I think fear could still play a role, uh, but it wouldn't play the role that it, it plays in our, in, our, in our lives sometimes in this fallen condition or that kind of anxiety that eats away at people and the worry. That wouldn't be, that's never part of God's design. But having an appropriate degree of anger, for example. Someone asked the other day uh, or, or last night about anger. Is there a Christian way to be angry? And um, our response was, yes, there is. Jesus got angry, but he didn't sin. But anger has an appropriate role. It's, it's Whenever something of value is violated, it creates the sense of anger. Now, what we get angry about is sometimes very inappropriate because we hang on to idols and put too much worth in the things that we shouldn't be putting any worth in. But the fact that we're angry, that itself isn't sin. Um, the, 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 God gets angry. Um, that's an appropriate thing. So trace it back and you'll find that, that oftentimes there's a, a good function that these, these emotions that seem so negative now, uh, what we're supposed to play. Greg, the old, so. <laughs> Hello. the old Testament authors say that God did violence, where you say that God simply allowed it. What justifies you changing the original meanings, and how does your cross-centered interpretation get God off the hook for violence? <laughs> okay, good. Yeah, good. Uh, this gets to the, the, the real uh, rub of the issue here. I, I shared uh, several weeks ago, just give a little bit, little little teaser about this uh, stuff I'm working on uh, in, in this book and suggesting there that uh, all of our reading of Scripture should be through the lens of the cross. You know, we, we should, that should be our interpretive lens and that when we look at the Bible that way, we can uh, see things that Old Testament authors couldn't see. We've got a privileged perspective now that we know uh, who God really is. And so, yes, we can interpret text differently. Um, it doesn't mean that we alter the meaning of the original text. The, the, meaning of the, origi- the original meaning of the text is the original meaning of the text. All I'm saying is that the original meaning of the text isn't the only meaning or the definitive meaning that, that it necessarily has for us as we read it and reinterpret it through the lens of the cross. Uh, some folks today have this idea, and I, I, a lot of us have been taught, you stick to the original meaning. That's the only meaning that you know, it, it can have. The meaning it has for us has got to be the meaning that it had for the original audience. But what's interesting, and that's kind of identified with conservative, if not fundamentalistic Christianity. But what's interesting is that that's not the way the New Testament authors read their Bible. You look at how the, Old Te- the New Testament authors quote the Bible and their Old Testament, and uh, it has very little to do with the original meaning of the text. They find Christ everywhere. Why? Because they're looking at it through the lens of Christ. And so the, the way that they quote and use the Old Testament, it's, it's not at all close to the, the, the original meaning. And that is how the church throughout history has interpreted the Bible, through the lens of Christ and under the rule of faith. Um, it wasn't until really the Enlightenment period in the 16th, 17th century where the secularists uh, who began to reject the church's authority began to read the Bible like you read any other book. And uh, so they were the ones who were saying the original meaning is the only meaning, all the spiritual rereading stuff. Forget about that. And that crept into the church and now becomes sort of a test of orthodoxy for the church. Uh, when in fact, that's not at all the way that the church has, has, has interpreted the Bible. So there's a real, a, a large movement of scholars now uh, that is trying to recover the traditional reading of the text. And uh, this, uh, my proposal to read the Old Testament through the lens of the cross is part of that whole movement. That the original meaning is the original meaning, but the meaning that we can find as we look at it from our privileged perspective given us in the cross, the absolute perspective, the full revelation, we, we can see uh, interpretations there that they couldn't possibly have dreamed of. All right. Okay. We're you have to read the book when it comes out, though. There's a lot more to say about it. <laughs> 
We're going to try to squeeze in two questions. Two more questions. Two Let's more. See if you can do it. All right. All right. It says in James 4, 17, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. What are we to think of God when he doesn't do all the good that he can do? Ooh. Ooh. Oh. Ah. Well, Paul. Speak to us, wise <laughs> one. Yeah. Revealed truth. Is God always good? We say it all say the yes. time. Say yes. Okay. Thank Jesus. You. All the time. We say it a lot around here. We're not the only ones because that is the message of, of the New Testament. There's nothing else clear. And yet, you know, the question comes, well, then if, if as James says, to know that you, to know to, to do something would be good and not doing it, well, that's, that's not good then. You're not being good. So can we accuse God of basically looking over entire planet Earth on every single day and seeing a bunch of stuff that could be better? And the fact that he doesn't make it happen, are we now having to say that I guess God's not good according to James 4? I, I think not. And I think here's why. We're back to, I forget, whether it was this service, all these services are starting to blend together hey, now. All these questions. me all the time. So if I said, this, I before, said this before, I apologize. Yeah. I don't think I did in this service. Um, but I think... Oftentimes, we get into a, a binary way of thinking about how God works in the world, meaning two options, and only two options. Either God uh, exercises sovereign control and just does it, or he can't. He just kind of sit back and let things happen, and boy, things are out of control. Um, but we believe that as you, as you search the scriptures, there's actually a third option of how God interacts with the world. It isn't either sitting back and doing nothing, which would be the would be a problem if God could do something and isn't. But neither is it what you kind of call omni-control, where the only will in the universe is God's, where, where all that's happening is what God wants to happen. Uh, I think if all that was happening was what God wanted to happen, this would be a much more beautiful place. Amen? So there's things that God looks at and weeps over. Jesus wept when he saw the death of his friend Lazarus. So what's going on? Well, if God wants a world where love is the point, then he's got to put up with things that he can't just step in and fix if he's not going to violate the freedom that makes love possible. And so God, I think, is always doing everything he maximally can do, meaning God is influencing but not coercing. He is always at work with to bring good out of evil, but not forcing people's wills against themselves so that love can still be possible. According to Romans 8.28, God is always working to bring good out of evil for, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's a promise of God. But that doesn't mean that he now runs roughshod over every human and angelic will to do it, because then, ironically, what might look good turns out to actually make all of us a bunch of robots and love disappears in the process. And so it's a, it's a finely balanced universe God has, and only God's wisdom knows yeah. uh, when influence stops and coercion starts. You know, if you think about it, it comes down to uh, two alternatives. If you agree that God is all good, perfectly good, then you either have to say that God is at all times doing all that God can do to further the good. He can't do more than that because of the, the free will that he, he's given. So either he's doing all that he can do, uh, but there's things other than his will that are influencing things. Or you have to say that everything that's happening is good. Uh, and that means that you have to say that the Holocaust and every other unthinkable evil is good. 
I don't want to say that. And so I am left with this other option that God influences, that he created a world that was free, and therefore um, there's, there's pushback. And uh, that's where the evil comes from. How do you know if you're in Christ Jesus? When I read those words, I feel like I'm reading someone else's mail. Hmm. Um, let me take this. Uh, I love it. That's a very good metaphor. Like I'm reading somebody's mail. And you ever feel like that? Where you're reading the Bible and it just doesn't seem real to you. Um, I think we all go through that. And for many people, that's, that's true all the time. Uh, you may believe it. You affirm it. But it doesn't feel true. Um, and I, I guess what, what I would say uh, about that is two things really quickly. One is, um, it's very important that your sense of security being in Christ is based on God's faithfulness, not your feelings. Uh, your feelings can come and go. They're about chemicals in our head. They're about things that we frame in our head, our imagination, and a lot of other things. They're very, very fickle. But whether you feel you're in Christ or not, trust God when he says, if you have faith in Christ and are, are walking, pledging to walk faithful with Christ, then you are in Christ. The in Christ thing is something that God does for you uh, because of your trust in him. So it's about trusting in the character of God. That's the essence of, that's why our picture of God is so important. Uh, have a trustworthy picture of God that you trust. And sometimes in life... It, I often feel like this. It doesn't feel real, but you just move ahead. Just keep on faithfully moving ahead. In any relationship, you know, in marriage relationship, you don't always feel the love, uh, but but you, that doesn't mean you, you're no longer in the marriage. No, you, you just keep on living faithfully. And sometimes the feelings come, sometimes the feelings don't come. So no, no element of your security based on feeling. Put all your security on God's faithfulness, his trustworthy, and, and, his, and his promises. He promises if you trust in him, you are in Christ. But having said that, it is good to, as much as possible, feel, get our feelings to line up with reality. And so if you're in Christ, it's good to uh, be moving in a direction where you can begin to feel like you're in Christ, at least some of the time. And, and to that, just know this. Uh, all of our feelings, all of our feelings are the emotive side of our imagination. The pictures and the tapes and the movies that we run in our head, they have an emotional dimension to them, and that's what we feel, even though we're not usually aware of the tapes and the movies and, and the stuff that we run in our head. But as kingdom people, we need to get our head to line up with the reality, what we know is true. And so I encourage people in your imagination, envision yourself in Christ, however that works for you. Uh, I have times where I spend with Jesus and I, I envision Jesus and the Holy Spirit's helping me here. It comes right out of 2 Corinthians 3 where um, I, I, he opens my eyes to see Jesus. We meet and we talk and he says all the stuff he says to me in scripture, but now he says it to me personally and I can see it in his eyes and, and see as my imagination is lining up with the truth, then I begin to feel uh, some of that truth. Or sometimes when I'm walking around, um, I picture to be in Christ, and this is only what works for me, and my brain's weird. Maybe yours will do it differently, but, but I, I picture like a bubble around me. I'm in Christ. So I know that wherever I go, I'm in Christ. Where, where, my address is always in Christ. Uh, and it's, whether I'm in France or America or the North Pole, I'm in Christ. And so I picture this sort of bubble around me. And I, one of the things it does, especially if I'm in situations where I feel alienated or out of place, which is quite frequently, actually. Uh, or or if, uh, if there's some hostility, you know, and maybe there's a little nervousness. When I picture myself in Christ, walking in this sort of Christ bubble, um, it just kind of ministers peace to me and, and, and kind of calms it down. So get your imagination. Pay attention to what your imagination is doing throughout the day. And spend special times where you're just 
have a date with Jesus where you pour your imagination into it and, and see if your feelings don't sometimes start to come around and begin to feel the reality uh, of what is actually already real because of your trust in God's trustworthiness. Amen. Amen. Amen.